Holy Lord, we come into this place expecting to meet you here. We come in here as people awake, people looking for the word, people wanting to dwell among one another as we wait for the Lord. Because we know that you're going to come, that your presence is here, that you are with us. We have come into this place because we know that you have arrived at this place long before we came in. And you have promised to be near us and to love us. So prepare our hearts, O Lord. Prepare us to expect you to break into our lives. Help us to be alert for the signs of your coming because those signs are all around us. We can see the signs of this season. We can look and know that there is something extraordinary that is happening. It doesn't matter whether you believe or not. Just look around and we know that there's something different about this season. But it is those of us who come to you in faith who know what that difference is. And we understand, Lord, that we have come here because we want to be awake to your spirit. We want to see the light of life. We want to be with you. So we pray, God, that we will know your grace, that we would know your love, that we would know your joy, that we would know your peace as we come into this place. May the wonder of Christmas be upon our souls as we come here. Help us to know that it is not just a day to buy presents and to hand out gifts. It is not just a day to celebrate with family. It is a birthday party of the Prince of Peace. And because of you, this season has meaning. Because of you, our lives can have meaning. Make it so as we gather here, O oh God, for it is in your name we offer our prayer. Amen. Hear these words from the Gospel of Luke. In those days the decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration and was taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered. Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. The word of the Lord. Thank Well, the opening words of what is arguably one of the most famous sections of Scripture uh, provide the setting for this greatest of all stories that uh, we tell this time of the year. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That's quite a statement, isn't it? Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, probably what the writer meant was that Caesar Augustus was ruler of the entire Roman Empire, which for those who lived under 
the rule of Rome, the empire was for all practical purposes the entire world. Historians tell us that Caesar Augustus, who was known as Octavian before he became emperor, was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar and that he had gained power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. And he was the first Caesar to be called Augustus, which in Latin means one who is divine. And in Greek, one who is to be worshipped. One inscription has been discovered that refers to Augustus as the savior of the whole world. Well, this is the context in which Luke tells this most famous of stories. It's no accident that Luke tells us when these things happened. He knew that it was important for his readers to know uh, the historical context in which the birth of Jesus took place. It was during the reign of Caesar Augustus, and this government had power. It had enough power that it could require every citizen of the known world to register for a census. Number one, it had military power. This was based, of course, on the Roman legions, 28 of them comprised of 60 or 6,000 fighters. Their job was conquest, and that also included building an infrastructure on which their control depended, such as ports and roads and bridges. Secondly, Rome had economic power. They had control of labor and production and trade and commerce. And then Rome, thirdly, had political power. They had control of organizations and institutions. And as soon as a province was conquered, organizations and institutions would immediately be Romanized. Well, fourthly, most importantly probably, Rome had ideological power control of meaning and interpretation. For example, Augustus was proclaimed to be a god. So what did he do? He ordered that a memorial to be built on the sacred ground where he had gained triumph over Antony and Cleopatra. And on the memorial, he ordered an inscription that summarized the heart of Roman imperial theology. It offered thanks to the war god, Mars and the sea god Neptune for the war he had fought, the victory he had obtained, the peace that had followed. And so there you have the elements of Roman ideology, religion, war, victory, and peace. You worship the gods, you go to war with their assistance, you are victorious, and you obtain peace because of God's generosity. For Augustus and for Rome, it was always about peace but always about peace through war and through violence, peace by force, peace through conquest, peace through victory. Rome had power and they used it. Now the people of first century Palestine at the time of the birth of Christ, they had no power. They were powerless. They had no military. They had no economic clout. They had no control over trade and commerce. They had no control over ideology or interpretation of events. They had no power. 
But what they had was a vision, an alternative vision, other than the one that was advanced by the kingdom of Rome, and it was called the kingdom of God. And the fundamental difference between these divergent visions is not the ends, but the means. The empire promises peace through violent force. By the exercise of its power, it could enforce the peace. On the other hand, the kingdom of God promises peace through nonviolent justice. Both the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God intend peace. They desire peace. But the imperial kingdom of Rome had as its goal peace through conquest, through victory, whereas the kingdom of God has as its goal peace through justice. And the clash of these two visions is the context for the birth of Christ, and they are like these two giant tectonic plates that are grinding constantly against one another. And even when all is quiet beneath the surface, these plates move slowly but relentlessly against one another. And where did this idea of peace through justice rather than brute force come from? Well, when you talk about justice, you do have to talk about power. They are inseparably linked, and there's nowhere else in the Bible that we encounter such a vivid picture of God's power as that as depicted in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. And here we discover various examples of how power can be used to liberate and to engender harmonious relationships built on a nonviolent vision of justice and righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 11, a model of divine power is found in a messianic figure, a servant who is empowered by God's Spirit to bring justice and righteousness by acting justly and with integrity. This passage is a magnificent vision of a a new kind of leader, one who is filled with the Spirit of God and will govern the people with justice and equity and whose only sword will be his strong and powerful word a shoot will spring from the stem of jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit and the spirit of the lord will rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the lord This leader that Isaiah prophesied would come and would possess divine power, but he won't judge on appearances. He won't make decisions that are based just on hearsay. He'll judge the needy by what is right. He will render decisions on the earth poor with justice. His words will bring everyone to attention, and he will build faithfulness and righteousness in the land. And what is the result of the divine power that's found in this messianic figure? The wolf will romp with the lamb. The leopard will eat from the same trough. A little child will tend them. Cow and bear will graze in the same pasture. 
their calves and their cubs will grow up together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. A child will crawl over rattlesnake dens, and neither animal or human will hurt or kill. Isaiah goes on to say that Jesse's root will be raised up high, posted like, like a banner, and all the nations will come to him. And this is a vision of peace achieved not by force, not by domination, but by righteousness and by justice. This very same language is used by Isaiah again and again and again to describe how this messianic figure will use his power. In Isaiah chapter 42, he writes, Take a good look at my servant. He's the one I chose, and I couldn't be more pleased with him. I've bathed him with my spirit, and he will set everything right with the nations. He won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches and gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt. He won't disregard the small and the insignificant. He will steadily and firmly set things right and he will not tire out. He will not quit. He cannot be stopped until he has finished his work to set things right on earth. The prophet is describing a figure who is filled with, with God's spirit. He will exercise his power. He will bring forth justice, not through violence, not through force, but with gentleness and with compassion. These two passages from the prophet speak of a new model of divine power, God's Spirit empowering human beings to govern justly and compassionately and wisely, and they suggest a model of leadership with the leader's power rooted and flowing from God's Spirit. This is the leader who will live out the vision of the prophets and will usher in the kingdom of God. Now, as Christians, as believers in Christ, we believe that Isaiah's vision of a divine leader is Jesus himself. We believe Jesus is the one empowered by God, the one on whom God's Spirit rests, the one who exercises his power with justice and compassion in order to liberate people from all sorts of suffering, all sorts of oppression, including our sin. Jesus' entire mission and ministry and life bear witness of God's divine power, a power that enabled him to seek reconciliation with even those who betrayed him and led him to a criminal's death. Now, we tend to think of justice as jurisprudence, catching criminals, sending them through the court system with due process, granting people legal representation and a jury of their peers. And if all goes well, those who are guilty of a crime, they, they go to jail. Such a sense of justice Though it's not absent from Scripture, it's not its central focus. Jesus also reminds us that justice has more to do with the care of the innocents than it does with conviction and punishment of the guilty. What does God's promise of justice look like? 
over and over again. The prophets, uh, God expresses concern for widows and orphans and aliens, women who have lost their husbands, children who have lost their parents, foreigners and strangers and sojourners to the land, the poor, the disabled, anyone who was highly vulnerable and had the potential to be socially invisible and marginalized. You cannot read Scripture and not realize that God has a soft spot in His heart for people like these. God commanded that the Israelites be a uh, society, be a community of sharing and compassion and laws were bent toward giving these people some advantages. Debts were not to remain forever. Foreclosed property was eventually to be returned to the family that, that had to forfeit the land in the first place. And farmers were to be purposely a bit inefficient when harvesting grain so that gleaners could come through and find plenty of leftovers. However, we know that Israel failed to follow these laws. The rich got richer. The poor got poorer. Widows and orphans were marginalized. Resident aliens were abused and they were ignored. The jubilee year when debts were to be forgiven was not observed and whole whole families became poor in perpetuity. And anything goes philosophy was adopted in business practices. The prophet Amos had declared, let justice roll down like a mighty stream but injustice was being practiced on a large scale. Amos says things got so bad that the poor themselves were being bought and sold. All through the prophets, you see this theme repeated over and over again. The correct use of power is to provide justice, the kind of justice has, that has more to do with protecting the innocent and keeping them from being exploited than it did with punishing those who committed crimes. When Jesus returned to Nazareth for the first time after he was baptized, he read from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue in Nazareth. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And what can be seen clearly in Scripture is a move from violence to nonviolence, from imperial power to relational power, from dominating hierarchies to servant leadership. Servant leadership is clearly taught and even commanded by Jesus, and he is the greatest example of good power. Now, having said all this, how do we put this into practice? The question we confront is whether we are able to see the people around us as the way that God sees them. Because if we fail to see people the way that God sees them, then we will also lack a sense of God's kind of justice. 
And if we lack God's vision of sharing and fairness and generosity and compassion and love, we will not even be on the lookout to give any help to anyone in the first place. My missions professor in seminary, Dr. John Johnson from South Africa, talked about the worm's eye view of humanity, about getting down in the ditch with people, as opposed to the bird's eye view of humanity, where we stand up on a hill or a mountain and we look down upon those who are oppressed and marginalized. Justice, God's justice, is about seeing the vulnerable, the poor, and the marginalized, not as people we simply can't understand, not as the enemy, not as losers, not as brothers and sisters who, who need our help, Justice calls for us to try to identify with those who may be down and out, to try to look them in the eye instead of observing from a distance or not even looking at them at all. Justice tries to create a le as level a playing field as possible such that if a person wants to make a living, he or she has the opportunity to do so. Justice is look, rooting out those things that stack the deck in favor of some but not others. Justice confronts exploitation of people. Now, none of this is easy. It's not easy to hear. It's easy, certainly not easy to put into practice, but it's clear from Scripture that the one whose birth we are preparing to celebrate here in just the next few days came to bring about peace through justice. Isaiah prophesied that there would be one who would come who by God's Spirit would bring forth justice and righteousness and equity by acting justly and with integrity he will be filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The prophet Zechariah wrote, Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. May that same Spirit rest on us this Advent season, and may God's justice be served. Well, would you join with me in our prayer of confession? O oh God, when we allow darkness to overcome the light, when we reduce the celebration of your birth to plastic and tinsel, When hardness of heart keeps us from seeing and hearing and touching. When the oppression and suffering around us are of no concern to us. When our caring is not extended to action. We come to confess our sinfulness before you and before each other. Remove all barriers that divide us. Let there be no obstacle to our love and 
Amen. In our assurance of pardon, the good news of this Advent season is forgiveness of sin and new life. Let us commit our lives to Christ's way of hope and of peace. I want to thank you for coming out this evening. Uh, immediately after our benediction, uh, we're going to dismiss, invite everybody to go downstairs for table fellowship. I believe we're having tacos. So invite everybody to come down for that. Now as we depart this place, may the joy of the angels, the eagerness of the shepherds, the perseverance of the magi, the obedience of Joseph and Mary and the peace of the Christ child be yours this Christmas and the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. <laughs>